I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Paramang people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. There's a couple of sayings around old vines to say, you know, are they good because they're old or old because they're good? In the case of us, I think they're old because they're good. Um, they're, just, they're not just there because, you know, they've just managed to hang out there for that long. They do need their maintenance and they need, um, and they certainly benefit from all the inputs that we do. And that's, I think that's the really exciting thing. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Jules Ashmead was born into the Campbell's family of Rutherglen. Today, her path in wine is solidified between two sacred places, the Rutherglen, where she is fifth-generation winemaker at Campbell's Winery, and in the Brossa Valley as head of production at Elderton Wines. Hi, Jules. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. Thank you for including me on your program. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Um, I was, I was going to ask you, now, how, how is life? But then I thought that's kind of a crazy question because I take it that just busy is how most of your life is. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it is busy. Um, there's no doubt about that. But um, but for a start, I've got to say, we've uh, I work with two great teams, one in Rutherglen at Campbell's and the other here at Elberton, which is where I'm home-based. Um, so if it wasn't without my team in both spots, it, it wouldn't happen. So I've yeah, I've got the busy role for sure, but also the great role of being able to see, you know, two beautiful parts of the world often and, and flip between the two. Um, so it's, it's busy, but it's great. I, I, I thought that, you know, I mean, nothing works um, on your own. You know, you always have to have an amazing team, but you also have three children. And I just thought, you know, two wineries, three children, is that kind of like looking after five babies 24 seven? Uh, yeah. And I have a husband too, so that's like a six. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> no, I'd love to say my kids, um, uh, you know, uh, can do everything for themselves, but it's not the case, but um, yeah, it's it's funny. I think the vintage period is crazy, as as we winemakers and viticulturalists know. But um, then we have this wonderful time, like now, when everything sort of settles down a little bit, and we can actually regroup and remember what our kids look like, and you know, and what family life was before vintage hit. And so, it's kind of you have these you know crazy ups and downs, and then yeah, so it's um. Yeah, it, it's busy and it's and it's a lot of management, of which I'm not very good at, but somehow we kind of fumble through. <laughs> I bet you're better than you think you are. Um, just for a little bit of context for everyone listening, can you tell me more about growing up um, as part of Campbell's? I mean, I, I believe that you actually lived right next to the winery. What was your kind of childhood like and, and how did you find your way into deciding, yes, winemaking was, was the path for you? Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, we did. We lived in the homestead, which is right by um, the winery, um, and it's it's called Bobby Burns, actually. Um, so that was a, a little, um, a beautiful old little red brick cottage. Um, so we lived there for the first five years of my life, and I'm the youngest of three girls in our family. Um, and we, so living next to the winery, we obviously were just in and out of the winery and, and following dad and mum around who are both involved with the winery. Um, and then we moved from there when I was still pretty young, but literally just up the road, so a kilometre away, so still very much um, by the winery and next to the vineyards. And so, in you know, in constant sort of um, understanding and, and flow with what's going on in the winery. So, and I think for me, being the youngest of, um, of the family, I just I had this just inherent interest in what dad was doing at all times. So I just used to 
follow him around, particularly in the busy times, particularly during vintage when he'd be, you know, doing special trips down to the winery after school and, and during the night just checking Beaumais and that sort of thing. So I could be his little rouseabout and um, jump up on top of tanks if we were pumping stuff around or whatever we were doing. So for me it was just a really um, unnatural sort of um, position to be in, to be involved in the winery. And then I, I guess getting older um, during holidays and that sort of thing, I'd just help out in the lab and and just be a part of what was going on. And, of course, we have a bottling line, so Campbell's is a pretty um, – is an, uh, sort of a from-the-ground-up um, operation where we grow grapes, um, make the wine, and um, bottle all on site. So there was a lot of facets to be involved with um, as a part of, of Campbell's growing up. And so for me, it was it was really – it was just a destination from, from the beginning. I just, I just knew that I always wanted to be involved with wine. I loved the fact that, you know, you – out in the vineyard, you'd see the grapes growing, and then you'd get to follow them all the way through. And it's a pretty magic um, situation to to be involved with. Mm, definitely, and and you know, such a, an institution of a winery, and so important for Australian history, um, must be pretty amazing to be part of that um, heritage and legacy. But it sounds like you had a pretty good relationship with your dad. Was it more that you wanted to kind of help him out and be around him or when you were younger, do you think, or do you think it was more really that you were quite interested in the work itself? Uh, uh, interesting. Probably a bit of both. I mean, if I wanted to be with my dad, I had to be at the winery because he was pretty much there all the time. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was kind of, you know, if, yeah, if I wanted to see him, I had to be there. But I think – um you know, he just had such a passion for what he did and such drive that I think it was really quite um, engaging and, and you know, something that I could almost feel when I was around him. So it was really just a really positive energy and he just um, – and I, I hope that we're doing the same thing now at Campbell's just sort of, you know, with our fortifiers, just pushing on with that dream of just continuing to try and make the best ones we can and um, and and same goes with with um with our table wines as well obviously but um yes i think that if that makes sense Shantae, it was just really um a pretty sort of exciting environment to be a part of oh definitely i mean um i can't even imagine it to be honest i mean you know my my family are teachers and and for love of money i I wasn't that interested in in um hanging around uh their schools or, or TAFEs, to be honest, but <laughs> I certainly like my time with them. You then went on um, after school to do an exchange year in Bordeaux. Um, it's such a place of grandeur, Bordeaux. I cannot imagine like, you know, debaucherous goon parties over there. What was your exchange year like? Uh, well, I, actually during that exchange year, I did go camping with a mate once and I, we did find a litre bottle of very basic um, Van de Bordeaux. So, uh, Van de Bordeaux. So, um, so it does exist even over there. Um, but it was amazing. And I think I'd already decided uh, I'd finished school in Australia. So it was, this was like a bit of a gap year, if you like, um, before going to study, um, which was my plan. And, um, I just landed in Saint-Emilion. Um, so I was completely blown away right from the beginning. Um, uh, with a beautiful, I was with a beautiful family who, um, sold their grapes to the local cooperative at that stage. But, um, my host dad, uh, Michel Grossier, um, is actually now a, a bit of a, a garagiste within Saint-Emilion and his family are now making their wine. So, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was an amazing year. It was tricky because I didn't, I headed over with sort of French that 
ended in um, year 11. So I, um, I, I had to learn pretty quickly. But um, And I, did, I attended a local school over in, um, in Montagna as well, which had a, sort of was it like a high school slash tech school. So I did some um, pruning in there in the local sort of vineyard that was attached to this um, tech school. And, um, and it was just, yeah, it was in hindsight, it was amazing. At the time, it was tricky, but still fun. But, um, you know, like all things, when we travel, it would be great to just go back in, in time and do it again with the knowledge we've got now because you sort of learned so much more. But, um, it was even, even then, I, um, in the holidays, I did some, um, handpicking for, um, Moulin, or Chateau Moulin Saint-Georges, which also has, uh, Chateau Ozone and, um, and, you know, just to, to, to be involved in, in a, a beautiful place and seeing some amazing wineries was, yeah, was awesome. And I think for me, it just gave me a real sense of, of quality, but next level care as well. You know, the, the, the sort of the lengths people go to with their 0.33 hectares of vineyard is just, um, extraordinary. And it just gave me a whole new appreciation of how, how really unique and precious these, these um, vines that we have are so yeah it was it was a really amazing experience in hindsight particularly yeah oh, yeah I can imagine that that sense of um that meticulous and the seriousness of how how passionate they were and I mean I think as Aussies we're just as passionate but in a more kind of aloof and and we just have a different way about us don't we so um I, I can imagine it being totally different and just um but also, wow, yeah, and I can I can see, yeah, you think, oh, my gosh, you know, what were we drinking that day or what were we trying? I want to go back and just experience it all over again. But what an experience to have, especially in a gap year. I mean, you know, most people go on um, <laughs> some crazy, crazy party buses and, su- and such like. But That would be fun too, I imagine, the old party bus. I didn't get to do that so much. But anyway, hey, there's time for that later. <laughs> <laughs> there's always time for that. And most of the time people don't remember them anyway, so... <laughs> Um, you returned home and you uh, spent some time at Two Hands Winery in Turkey Flat. So straight from, I imagine it was straight from Bordeaux. You, you correct me if I'm wrong. And then into, into the Barossa. Um, what, what was the experience like of Barossa and, and what impressed you the most other than your husband, Cameron, who I believe you met then? Uh, yeah, no, I'll uh, fast forward a few years. So I, I came back to Oz after, um, that gap year and studied winemaking. And then I kind of slid it off and did um, vintages sort of all around. Um, well, you know, as you do when you've just graduated as a winemaker, you sort of go off and just pull hoses wherever you can find a vintage and learn as much as you can in, you know, as short a period as you can. So I did um, a couple of vintages, uh, one in um, Mudgee, the New Zealand, um, Napa, um, then I went down to Chile and over to Prirat and then um, back to um, – uh, and then back to where did I? Oh, then I ended up in France and stayed in the Rhone actually for a year, um, which was my first sort of um, formal, I guess, uh, winemaker role. Um, and then yeah, so so that's that was a, a brief kind of um, dabble in every winemaking around the world. And then um, from the Rhone, I came home to Two Hands. Um, so yeah, so I'd had a bit of a bit of experience in between. Um, yeah, so that's maybe changes the question a bit. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense because and, and you would have been working a little bit with Shiraz as well in the Rhone, obviously. So that makes a little bit more sense. Um 
And what, 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 I mean, did you enjoy working with Shiraz? Was that something that you thought, I mean, or Syrah, sorry, um, you thought that's something when you came back home you wanted to do? Yeah, and I think um, having had the experience growing up with, you know, a lot of Shiraz and then um, and then working, um, I worked with Shiraz also in um, in Chile and, and in Prerat a little bit and, um, and in Napa. So the one I worked for did have a reasonable amount of Shiraz there. So I think, for me, that was a, an eye-opener, um, as much as I love also Grenache, which we work with here in the Barossa, and I did obviously in the Rhone. Um, but, um, yeah, Shiraz is um, – I just – I find it just an amazing grape variety, and I think that's probably – well, that is why I was so interested in the work at um, – in the job at Two Hands because they um, – their one of their sort of main points of difference was the fact that they made Shiraz from so many different regions. So just to have the opportunity to have a look at you know, Shiraz from Heathcote versus um, Langholm Creek, Barossa, McLaren Vale, Clare. Um, it was uh, it was really interesting to just see all that variety within one um, one grape variety. So, yeah, it was a really it was a nice way to break back into being in Australia and um, and for want of a better word, settling down. I guess, but yeah, yeah. So I imagine that you were in really great hands, uh, which excuse the pun to work with, two, you know, so many different styles of Shiraz. Um, what happened when it turned into a decision about what you were going to do for your future? I just imagine that was really difficult, being that you had this family legacy, but then also you, were, you know, wanted to be in the Barossa with your husband, I imagine. So how did that all kind of play out that you got the best of both worlds? Ah, uh, good question. It, um I think um, well, my dad, for one, had always said that as, um, you know, as members of, of our family, if we wanted to come and work back at Yinawana at Campbell's, we needed to go away and get some experience first. So that was um, the first thing we had to tick off so I was on my mission to do that and, and to get as much experience as I could. But then um, I think that I, I could see the benefit of being involved with Campbell's and also um, having an avenue for work elsewhere and just, just an opportunity to see, you know, what was happening in another part of um, the Australian wine industry. So it sort of, it kind of worked um, for me and for Campbell's being able to work with the, our current winemaker who was there, you know, back when I was just um, freshly back in Australia. And so I had a, a good relationship and I would be over and rather than um, tasting and doing, you know, um, the sort of serious blending sessions um, over there and certainly involved with fortified blending, which sort of happened in the summer months where there wasn't a lot happening um, back in the winery in the Barossa as well. So I kind of could, could go between the two. Um, and so, yeah, so that was working quite well in the early days. But um, I think the, yeah, the, the crunch point came when I met my now husband, Cam, and it sort of meant that I may actually have to decide which place I wanted to set up as home base. And, um, and perhaps, yeah, that was, that was a hard decision to say that I'd live in, um, in the Barossa, but, um, work more at Campbell's. And obviously it's, it's really come to a head in the last couple of years that my father passed away, um, just on three years ago now. And, um, and so with that, we've really, um, I've had to become a lot more involved with Campbell's and I've wanted to be more involved, but it's, it's tricky as, um, you know, as time goes on and, and I get more sort of more roots laid down in the Barossa. So, um, it's, it's, it's a challenge, particularly with no direct flights, but, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it works. I suppose like anything, when you, when you, have a love for something and you're dedicated, you find a way to make it work, you know, and, and like you said, it just most of the time it relies on having really, really good teams at both ends. Tell me about your time at, well, at Elderton uh, and working with old vines, Command and Hellbig, they're 
amazing old vines. So what's your approach in the vineyard and what's your experience of, of Elderton? Yeah, so I started working at LD, um in 2016 um, and just in the lab and that was um, under our old winemaker, Richard Langford, and then he moved on um, a few years ago now, So, um, which was presented a great opportunity for me to get to know the winery, you know, on a much more sort of serious level as opposed to just being um, – being involved um, and um, and I guess um, in sort of taking on more of a role that oversees vineyard and winemaking and not sort of um, being bogged down so much in the winemaking side only um, has allowed me to get out to the vineyard more and just really get to understand these old beauties that we've got because, um, yeah, as you say, Shantae, the, the, the old vines are amazing um, and the, the depth of fruit and flavour that we get from them is, is just remarkable. We're looking at, at the moment, we're just looking at wines as they're tricking, uh, trickling through Malo. And it, you can just, you can tell the fruit that's come off those, um, those old vines, even at the earliest stages that we're at now. They've just got, they've got a depth of tannin and just a, a richness that is, um, just completely unique. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real honour to work with them. And I think our approach to answer that question in the winery is just to keep it as simple as possible. Um, we do we like to hold things on skins um, for a little longer if we can. So we've got some um, fermenters that are actually new this year that we, have, we can seal up the, um, the tulips, the cement tulips, which, um, which are fantastic and have proved really useful just to, just to help develop that tannin profile without sort of hindering um, – by sort of any you know further oxidation um, in ferment, so that's been that's been really helpful. But then um, then also just just preserving fruit, you know, hand picking, getting fruit in and getting um, holding it cold as much as we can, and then um, um, just letting it do what it does. Um, sounds really simple, doesn't it? But um, but that's what, what makes the best wine. Um, unfortunately, the Helbig block, which is out in Grenock. Um, that's uh, a one where sort of we don't know quite so well because we've only had that vineyard for sort of 15 years. But um, um, but that that fruit was the, those vines were planted in 1915, and um, and they as well they're a completely different style of fruit to what we get from our command fruit, which is in um, in Europe, in the you know on the valley floor and the Brossa. Um, so um, much more nervy tannin and um, and edgy, you know, really soaks up New York and. Um, and, and is quite bold, but um, we have such a tiny volume of that that it's always a bit of a juggle to find the right vessel to put it in. It mostly just ends up in um, in punctions that we take the heads out of and, and just plunge um, for for its duration of ferment, and um, and then yeah, we we just press it off into into that oak. So yeah, so um, just it's just awesome to work with such um, a variety of fruit. But yeah, as I said, just those old vines that that just this their own individual stamp they put on. The, the the wine the resultant wine is um is amazing oh my gosh absolutely i i remember still to this day the first time i ever tried um the command wine um and i was probably about 20 oh god 24 i would say working at a little um little kind of boutique uh, retail store and i just remember not realizing that wine could be so delicious and intense and just full of flavor. And I still remember because I, I, you know, the the labels have been, um, you know, they've got, they've got that really iconic label. And still to this day, when I walk past them in a shop, I kind of I think about that. I think about like the first time I tried it. So very impressionable wines, and uh, I mean, no pressure on you to to get them right. <laughs> but- yeah, no, not at all. no, no, not feeling that at all. No. <laughs> 
Um, but the Barossa does have um, a little bit of their, their Barossa charter on vines. Can you run us through a little bit about the importance of that for the region? Yeah, and um, that um, yeah, I don't have the, the exact numbers in front of me, but um, uh, yeah, that's been a, that's been great for us as a region. It just it just helps us um, understand it, and for want of a better word, categorise you know how old is old because when you talk about old vine in the Barossa, it can be anything from you know forty years of age to one hundred and fifty years of age and beyond. So. Um, so to have um, an idea and just to be able to sort of put a stamp on something and say, look, yes, these are our command vineyards and they're actually ancestor vineyards because they're over 125 years of age. That's um, that's 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 great and it's just a really sort of easy way for people to understand um, where they where they fit in um, and, and where they where they sit in the in the scheme of things. So. Yeah, so that's um, that's a really um, useful tool, I guess, if you like, um, for us to to explain where our vineyards sit. Yeah, I think so, and I think for you know maybe most people know this. I don't know, but you know, the older vines get, the gnarlier they get. They produce usually less fruit, less bunches, and more concentrated fruit. So, you know, it's a specialty item, isn't it? Because you can't just keep replicating it, even if it's your top seller and you sell out every year. You can only make so much of it, and you can mess it up. But they do tend to offer you just. Um, just great fruit to start with, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, um, I think also, um, you know, there's um, there's a couple of sayings around about around um, old vines to say, you know, are they old? Are they good because they're old, or old because they're good? Sorry, that's I'm coining a phrase that I think my um, brother-in-law Al likes to use. But um, and it's and it's a good point though because. In the case of us, I think they're old because they're good. Um, they're just—they're not just yeah. there because you know they've just managed to hang out there for that long. They do need their maintenance, and they need—and um, they certainly benefit from all the inputs that we do. And that's—I think that's the really exciting thing, particularly for us in in the era that we're in now. Like we've had—you know—the Australian wine industry has had such an amazing sort of few decades of growth, and it's—we're and, and we as Aussies, I think you touched on it earlier, Shante, are really good at you know just. At just getting stuff done and um, and exploring and, and using innovation and you know creating the next best thing, but I think we're really realizing now that it's it's actually all about us to get the inputs back into the vines and to just give them what they need and listen to them and just and take it back to them and say you know this is you tell me what you need and um, and we'll and we'll go from there. So I think that's that's probably the most exciting thing that we're seeing and we're already kind of seeing the benefits of just. Just really taking, it sounds silly, but just a really keeping a really close eye on, on their vine, on, on our health of all of our vines, particularly our old stuff, but obviously all of our fruit. And, um, and yeah, giving it exactly what it needs, not overdosing it in, you know, fertilizer or anything just to try and get the best, biggest crop we can. Just, um, yeah, getting that balance right. Yeah. I, to- I totally agree. And, we want it. We want to keep doing this for a long time. So it's so important that we pay attention and, and like you said, listen to what's happening uh, on the land that we're so lucky to, to work with. I want to talk about Campbell's and uh, I hate to say like, sum it up for me. What are the differences between the two? Because how do you do that in a few paragraphs? So let's talk um, fortified wines at Campbell's. They, you make some amazing wines there right across the board. The Bobby Burns Shiraz is one of my favourite. But I want to talk about fortifieds just because we were talking about um, vines and, um, you know, the, the, the beautiful um, uh, wines that you make at Elderton. But let's talk fortifieds because a completely different process. Uh, 
is that a joy for you or is that painstaking and a pain in the bum for you? <laughs> uh, it's um, it's amazing for me, particularly because I have the luxury of not having to do the long vintage that goes with it. So um, I don't have to sort of just wait until they're ready to go. And then finally, you know, when you've just finished everything else, you got to clean the press up and press the muskets and the topics, which is even more sort of um, touch and go when it gets to that sort of pointy end at the end of harvest. But um, so, yeah, so um, uh, I'd say hats off to our team in Rutherland because they do, they just they just hang in there and just keep waiting. And we, we normally have these beautiful long um, summers and autumns that just, just carry on. They get cold, so we get those sort of, those acids don't sort of deteriorate too much, but we just get that, those lovely dry um, autumn days. So we do get that um, raisining, but still that sort of freshness of fruit in the underneath bunches. So so that's um, a completely different um, thought process to making a, um, a dry red or white table wine for that matter. But um, yeah, it's a, it's an, it's an absolute joy. And they're just, I mean, they're just, they're just such amazing wines and they're probably, I think if I could sum them up, they're almost a bit more honest than a, than a red wine or a table wine. They're sort of what you see, although obviously, given it's got age for anywhere from, you know, five years up to 50 years um, before you might put it in bottle. But they're, they're sort of, they tell you what they're all about from the early stages. You know, you, you get the, you get, they have quite honest flavours and um, and you can, you know, when you, even when you just press something off that you've, you've got something that's amazing that will fit, you know, a rare classification or something that's really vibrant and fruity that will just slip into um, a Rutherglen or a, a classic um a classification of fortified so yeah so it's it's a joy and it's something and it's just it's such a nice um pleasant change from looking at um at reds day in day out during um during vintage and beyond so yeah it's um it's good and i think i think the having obviously the the effect of fortification really um muddles the wine for a while so you sort of do that and pop them away and let them just hang out for um sort of 10 months or so and then you come back to them and they've just turned into these golden or sort of lovely um, light pink coloured um, wines then it's like wow this is it's just amazing so they're, they're just on their own sort of path of evolution um, without requiring too much of us in that time so yeah such living living breathing uh, entities I I have no idea I mean just hearing you talk about that they're, they're quite honest I I've never really like looked at um, you know musket off the vine I can't even imagine it and the process I mean I love fortifieds and and a pears and sherries are like one of my favorite things in the world so I really would love to see the process of yeah like you said just even at the start because um the only picture I have is kind of um you know of soleras and things like that that I you know diagrams and it, it just doesn't do it justice so I will have to get out there to to, to see um the process because I find it fascinating and and they are the most amazing wines I mean no I don't think anywhere in the world makes um, musket and muscadel like we do and uh and you know they can last for so long so you know you don't have to pop a bottle and and you know worry too much um how long you're drinking I know they don't last forever but they are truly amazing wines and uh and, and at Campbell's, you just do such a amazing job. I mean, total awe. Oh, no, well, um, yeah, I think thank my father for that. Absolutely. We're just trying to keep it afloat. But we are, um, I think we are lucky in that Dad set up um, a Solera system at Campbell's um, years ago. So while some fortified producers, particularly in Rutherland, don't follow a, a, a traditional Solera system, they just sort of have a, an old cask and will um, bottle up 
a, a certain portion of that and, and make a blend, you know, when they're ready for their for their next bottling. But um, yeah, we're lucky in that we've at Campbell's we've got these these amazing stocks that we obviously refresh and replenish and, and maintain, and that that takes time. Obviously, but um, but our style is quite for that reason quite unique. Um, and yeah, it's it is um yeah it's it is it is a wonderful thing to be a part of. But um, I wholeheartedly agree. And um, with your statement about not needing to drink them all in in one sitting, I think if I could do one thing for the for the um for the fortified wine industry, it would just be to get a bottle of fortified in everybody's household, and they could just sip away at it over time and not you know not rush it, but just have it there because it's just the most perfect way to finish off an afternoon. Uh, afternoon, I should say evening. <laughs> no, you can say afternoon. I totally agree. <laughs> I think I, I agree. I would probably, you know, forgo any sweet dessert forever if I could just have a little half glass of muscat or muscadel or, or or sherry or something like that to finish because I find them so complex. You can have the tiniest sip and have flavours left in your mouth for half an hour later. They're truly just unique. And, and you know, you see them at wine shows whenever, you know, there's, a bunch of wine judges around talking fortifieds, there's a moment where you just see people lost for words and, you know, the, the scores are just, you know, golds all round and we're all just, just going like, how does it get any better? So um, pretty amazing. So what's, what's coming up for you uh, and, what, and what's the plan for the next few years for both wineries or what are you looking forward to and what's the next challenge? Well, I think um, it would be amazing to just see an ordinary vintage at Campbell's. We've we've had um, 2020. We um, we lost all of our red wine through uh, smoke taint, and um, 2021 was okay. It was a decent vintage. 22, we've had we copped a fair bit of that rain that was you know all along the eastern seaboard. So we've had we've had a shaky few years over there. So look, I would just love for us to have a bit of normality. Which sounds really boring, but um, but that would be awesome. We've got a um a pretty cool composting program happening over in Rutherglen and um and yeah, again just 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 trying to do what we do and do it well. Um that would be the go for as far as Campbell's is concerned, I think. Um and in the Barossa, um we are we are Doing a fair bit of work in our vineyard this year. We've got we've got a replant. Well, we took out and replanted some old cabernet at Grenock a couple of years ago, and that will um, just start to come online in its new form, which is um, cuttings from various Shiraz blocks around um, the Brossa that we have. So that'll be just, just um, getting that up and running this year will be a great project, and then sort of fostering that into its first little. Um, cuvee in, in a year's time. So that w- is pretty exciting. And, um, and we're also, uh, reworking a little bit of our command block out here this winter. So there's a fair bit of sort of maintenancey kind of, um, yeah, just focusing on, on just looking after what we've got this year. So it, it probably sounds a bit boring, but, um, but that's, that's good for us just to, um, take stock of where we're at and make sure that everything is, is working as it should be. And I'm hoping maybe to get overseas at some point this year because we can all of a sudden with this um COVID kind of ending. So yeah, so there may be maybe a little bit of travel somewhere too, but I'm not sure about that. That is maybe just a pipe dream at the moment. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're too scared to wish for too much at this stage, aren't we? We're just like back to normality would be great. But you travel, yeah. I, I agree. We can travel now. It would be really great to do it. But I, I really hope that you do have some maybe slightly, you know, higher yielding vintages. And like you said, that, that stock standard where everything kind of, 
you know, you're not even asking for perfection. You're just asking for a solid year. So I, I really hope that that happens for you. No, thank you. Yeah, we are fingers crossed. I guess that's what we have to do. We're farmers after all, aren't we? So that, yeah. You have to take it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. There is so, only so much that you can do. Um, I always ask everybody on the podcast if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, Jules. What would your three be, and why? Well, I, I yeah, I had a feeling this was this was coming. Um, and I can I can I just can I add tea in there just as a fourth one, just because? Totally, totally. Uh, so my day wouldn't happen if it wasn't for my cup of tea in the morning, just black tea um, with a dash of milk and a tiny dash of honey. That that is the day begun for me. Um, so that that is a must have. Um, but then beyond that, I was trying to think about what what would it be, and it obviously varies um, with the season, but. Um, I do love white wine, so and I think something that is just uh, really um, can sort of be you know different in different places. It have to be Chardonnay because we can have a, a Chablis really sort of acid-driven mineral Chardonnay or a big um, overblown oaky version, which is also equally delicious in the right scenario. So that would be one. Um, two, of course, would have to be Shiraz because. Again, in so many different forms, I can have a really bunchy, vibrant one or like a lovely aged version of something that's more traditional in style. So um, that would be number two. And it wouldn't be me without having a fortified in there. But I think for me, my two cake would be my my absolute go-to fortified, something that is – we can't make topeg every year. It's it's really quite a it's not like musket. It's not sort of so obvious, but um, just so delicious when it's um when it's got a little bit of age on it, and um, so probably just a classic a classic topeg is something that I have on the shelf at all times. <laughs> so there you go. That's my thing. Oh, I completely understand. Like I really love musket. I love the red berry flavors you get in musket, but topeg is just. I mean, they call it liquid gold for a reason, right? I mean, I think you guys coined that. I don't know if it was, but you guys that coined that phrase, but it is just something otherworldly. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree. They, they, it's, yeah, an amazing, it, it is something that was created somewhere else in a different landscape. And, uh, we're just lucky to be able to <laughs> consume it. Absolutely. I totally agree. You just enjoy it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, excellent choices. (laughs) Jules, it's been a pleasure getting to know you more and hear about your passion for what you do. I was thinking about um, you uh, the other day and I was thinking um, what it would be like to to be making wine in two different regions and especially in the last few years and and how hard it is to travel. And I came across a quote from Pablo Casal, who's a a Spanish cellist, um, and I thought it was kind of fitting, maybe more for the state of the world, but also maybe for you as well. And he said, the love of one's country is a splendid thing, but why should love stop at the border? And I really felt that connection that you have with what you've talked about in the two regions. And um, I think it's a good reminder that we really live in the lucky country. We have so many amazing wine regions and um, uh, hats off to you for being being able to do what you do. And uh, I like that you've kind of made it work for you because why should we just say, no, I have to choose one when, we, when you can have access to both. So good on you. And uh, I hope that we get to chat again sometime soon, hopefully in person. Oh, Shanta, that would be, that would be awesome. So yeah, thank you so much. It's been, it's been lovely. And, um, yeah, look, I, I, as I said, I couldn't do what I do without a great team and maybe I'm just greedy, but, um, but hey, it's fun. And we, I'm I'm in total agreement though. We do live in a lucky country. No doubt about that. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Jules, and cheers to you. Cheers.
Bye. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.